0: it would be useful to keep them open we're particularly going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 to 3 don't panic, most preachers when they see the word therefore think it gives them an excuse to expound the rest of what's happened before it I'm not going to expound chapters 1 to 11 although I'll be referring to them from time to time in the midwest of America there was a militant atheist a notorious atheist because he didn't keep his views to himself. He went around and he addressed public meetings and at every opportunity he would, he would pronounce on his atheistic faith and try to convert people to it. Well, so the story goes, one day his life was in great danger in some dreadful floods, rather like the kind of floods that in fairly recent weeks have devastated this country. And this blood led him to his senses and he was converted. He became a Christian. Naturally, when he became a Christian, he became a militant Christian who went around the country telling everyone about the Lord Jesus Christ and asking them to, ask him to share his faith. And indeed, he, it must be said that he ate out on this for most of the rest of his life. He received invitation after invitation to address gatherings And it must be confessed, the flood story got ever more dramatic, and the conversion became ever more exciting, as the time went on. And so the apocryphal story goes, he died, and when he reached the pearly gates, the angel who met him said, it's common on your first night here to give your testimony. And of course he was delighted, he said, I'll tell them about the flood. The angel said well we know about that We've heard about it often enough But I feel I ought to tell you Noah will be in the audience I suspect when we read Hebrews 11 And think about faith That is what must strike us Abraham, Moses, David, Noah And other figures are in the audience What about our faith? But that would be to misunderstand this passage This passage isn't saying, look, you don't have much faith, you ought to have more faith This passage isn't saying, oh, go and feel guilty, have a guilt trip about your lack of faith This passage is written to encourage discouraged Christians Probably a letter is written to a group of Christians scattered around the city of Rome Probably, probably in the 70s of the first century or thereabouts And they are finding life difficult they've suffered persecution, they've suffered disappointments it's the second and third generation and the early fire has rather burned low and our author says don't opt out this is the great burden of our author and he says Christian life is a marathon it's not a sprint, it's a marathon you've got to keep going you must remember a few weeks ago the anguish etched on the face of the athlete who failed to complete the Olympics after training so hard And so diligently Everyone who saw that must have felt heart sorry For the poor woman who failed to complete the race Our author is saying Make sure that you complete the race He's saying this to his original hearers He's saying that to us How are we going to do that? And in particular our author says in chapter 12 verse 3 Consider him That's our subject this evening Consider him Consider Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith in some pulpits and lecterns, particularly in some English nonconformist churches, on the lectern, invisible to everyone except the preacher, is written the words from John 12, Sir, we want to see Jesus. That's a reminder to the preacher of what they're there for. Sir, we want to see Jesus. And that's what the letter to the Hebrews is about. You could write this over the letter. It's a big letter. That's why I'm always slightly amused. 1322 says to you, I've written to you only a short letter. I think if we had written a letter as long as Hebrews, we would feel we had done justice to our subject, but I suspect in those days of paging and texting, the art of letter writing is dead. Nevertheless, this is a big letter, but compared with the vastness of the subject, Jesus and the whole drama of redemption, it is only a few words. So as we look at this then for a few moments I want us to look at three people or three groups of people Who crowd the scene in chapter 12 verses 1 to 3 As he he comes to the end of this great panoramic survey of faith He says therefore since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses We look first at the spectators, the great cloud of witnesses Later on in the the chapter they are described as the spirits of the righteous made perfect, this is the church in heaven and of course it's grown considerably since the author wrote far more people, far more of the church is in heaven than is on earth at any one moment and they, it keeps on growing this group of people whom the book of Revelation describes a great multitude whom no one could count around the throne of God and of the Lamb the question arises, what are the witnesses of there's a great mystery here do the blessed dead, do the Christian dead know anything of what is happening in the church on earth we don't know it is a mystery and sometimes we may speculate but the important thing is not so much that they are witnessing what is happening but they are witnesses in in another sense they are witnesses to the fact that it is possible to make it That the marathon can be won Indeed that millions and millions have won that marathon And they have now reached the goal The reality of the life of faith And the reality of the invisible world That's what they bear witness to Our author says look at the great cloud of witnesses What do they bear witness to? They bear witness to the fact the race can be run The race has been run And many are there to prove it Now of course we've got to live in the present and visible world the world of jobs, the world of study, the world of shops, the world of employment and unemployment, the world of relationships There's no danger of us not living in that world You've heard it said, I'm sure so-and-so is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use I've never in my life met anyone like that That's not the problem of the contemporary church and it's certainly not my problem Our problem is we're terribly comfortable in this world Thank you very much So comfortable that heaven seems a kind of inconvenient um, ending As it were Our author is saying We must look ahead to the goal it said of Moses back in verse 27 of chapter 11 He persevered because he saw him who is invisible They are witnesses that the goal can be reached And that shows us the great importance of reading the Bible Our author expects us to know our Old Testament because he continually refers to it and he continually draws from it. The Old Testament is not prelude to the Gospel. The Old Testament is part of the Gospel, part of the great story. It's important as well to read church history, to read Christian biography, to be inspired and to be challenged, to look at the problems and the opportunities of the past. So what are the witnesses witnessing to? They're witnessing to the fact that huge crowds of people have made it to the goal. They haven't fallen out, they haven't opted out. They are there and they they give us proof that there is a goal and that it can be reached. Consider him, says our author. The reason they are at the goal is because he is there. That's the first group of people then, the spectators, those who have gone before us in the Christian race those whom as chapter 11 verse 13 says saw and welcomed the promises from the distance remember the great multitude, majority of them of whom the author writes had never actually heard of Jesus himself they had heard prophecies of him they had looked forward to him but they hadn't seen the full revelation and yet they kept going now secondly let's look at the runners and that's us as well as every other Christian who is alive at this moment let us, he says, run with perseverance the race marked out for us, chapter 12, verse 1 now he's not calling us to competitive racing he's not calling us to say we've got to compete with each other and try to to win brownie points that's not what he's saying at all it's priorities here, not competition and he tells us there are two things that we need to avoid that we need to deal with if we are going to run this marathon effectively and the first thing is everything that hinders let us throw off everything that hinders athletes train with a kind of ferocious discipline they don't do many things they would love to do they don't indulge in many things they would love to indulge in because they are so determined they are going to reach the goal and win the race now these are not necessarily wrong things all of us have things that hinder us from running the Christian race For some it might be money We are so obsessed with making money That that's become the overriding priority The Bible doesn't say you've got to stop making money What it, do, what it does say is you've got to stop being governed by that That's to cease becoming your God It may be status It may be that we have a kind of position which we are terribly proud of Maybe even in Christian things we may, we may treasure that more than we treasure the Lord Jesus Christ our reputation in Christian circles maybe our job which has become so overwhelming that we don't bring Jesus into it maybe our studies it may be that they have become so totally dominating that we no longer any time to pray we no longer any time to read our Bibles and so on it could be ambition it could be anything at all anything that is hindering us from running the Christian race and reaching the goal that doesn't mean that you give all these things up, what it means is we put them in a right priority and this isn't something we do once and then it's all settled this is something we have to keep on doing every day as you wake up and your own desires and ambitions, clamorance you've got to say no to them, you've got to say look I've I've got priorities and, my, and you've got to fit into my priorities not that, um, not that Jesus has to fit into other priorities now I know what some of you are thinking some of you are thinking we are terribly terribly busy we're crushed under the weight of our job this isn't asking to add another layer I'm not saying if you're terribly busy at your job then that means you've got to start running a prayer meeting as well what I'm saying is keep on doing what you're doing but do it for Jesus Do your studies to please Jesus Do your job to please him Earn money so that you can use it in his service Throw off, says our author, everything that hinders Now the second thing is the sin that so easily entangles Now what does that mean? The old authorised version talks about the besetting sin Which has become a proverbial phrase, our besetting sins And it could mean, of course, any sin a sin which is specific to me, but not to you. A different sin at different times of our lives, which causes us to not to run the race. But I think the author is referring to something else. Back in chapter 3, he talks about a sinful, unbelieving heart, which turns away from the living God. And there he begins an extended comparison between the church and Israel in the desert that generation who left Egypt and crossed the desert only two, Joshua and Caleb, made it to the promised land everyone else fell away and our author is terrified that's going to happen to the early generation of Christians that the Christian church is going to die out it's as serious as that and it very nearly did the great first century churches the churches of which we read in the book of Revelation, the seven churches in Asia or Turkey, these churches have gone and they've, and they've gone and they're, they're nowhere to be seen. I was hearing recently about someone who had done one of those package tours around the seven churches, around, around modern Turkey. And in one of the places, say the ancient Smyrna, now called Izmir, which is one of the churches which the Risen Lord addresses in the book of Revelation, he asked the guide, where was the Christian church? Where was the church in Smyrna? And the guide replied, we think it was over there, because that's where the mosque is. You see, the church had gone. And the author, and the author sees the danger of that but what happened to the kingdom of God? Hasn't the kingdom of God gone? Because the churches in Smyrna and Ephesus have gone, of course not The kingdom continues to grow The witnesses continue to be added to the great cloud of witnesses It's difficult to look out on Christianity in the West today and have any great optimism, isn't it? When you, hear, when you read church reports you, feel that you hear things like the tide growing out it's relatively easy in a church like this well attended and flourishing to actually not be conscious of just how many churches even in this city are dying how many, how many people are utterly discouraged at the apparently inexorable decline of the church and this has happened before in the 18th century the situation was of anything even worse and Bishop Butler wrote in his journal the church in England no power on earth can save those were days when about six people were turning up to Westminster Abbey for a communion service on Easter day that's how desperate the situation had become just some 18 months later a man sat in Aldersgate in London listening to uh, an exposition of the letter to the Romans and this man wrote in his journal my heart was strangely warmed and God laid his hand on John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and others and within a few short years revival was sweeping through this country through parts of Europe and on into America the beginning of the great missionary movement uh, flowed on into the 19th century it brought the gospel to more people than since the time of the apostles God will build his church God will carry out his work however depressing it may be but our responsibility is to run the race I think when we begin, often we think it's easy when you become a Christian, very often nothing seems too great, nothing seems too difficult it's exciting, new friendships, new opportunities then before very long difficulties come in, some difficulties because you're human and some difficulties because you're a Christian people start start mocking you Your, your family don't necessarily like it and so on, it becomes very very difficult and it's easy to swing to the opposite extreme and think then it's impossible now it's neither easy nor impossible it is tough, it is difficult but when, think, when you think of giving up when you're tempted to give up our author says consider him so that you will not go weary and lose heart that brings us to the third figure in the crowded scene which is Jesus himself the author and perfecter of our faith The great cloud of witnesses surround him at the finishing post the runners look towards him as they run notice that he uses the name Jesus, the human name the one who not only is one with God but became one of us and is one of us still, no letter in the New Testament is more emphatic that Jesus is equal with God, we read about that in chapter 1, he is the exact image, the full expression of God and yet here he uses the human name because not only is he at the goal he himself ran the race he, he experienced it, he knows and he has alongside to help Now one of the difficulties the early church had was that they were sometimes called atheists this sounds fairly incredible to us but as the ancient world looked around at the Christians where were their temples, where were their altars, where were their priests they didn't have any of these things the like when Archbishop Laud came up to Scotland in the 17th century to impose episcopacy on the Scottish Church. And Laud found, found a very, what he regarded as a very bleak and unadorned form of service, and he writes, The benighted people appear to have no religion at all. Because he so identified it with externals, and with robes, and with incense, and so on. Now, The letter to the Hebrews is saying But we do have all these things We have an altar We have a better sacrifice And above all we have a great high priest Who has gone into heaven Jesus the son of God So what does he say then What does it mean to consider him First of all verse 2 Let us fix our eyes on Jesus That phrase fix our eyes is a paraphrase And not a very exact one It's an unusual word and it means look away from, towards Look away from, towards Jesus And the obvious question is look away from whom or look away from what Now some argue it means we look away from the the sins and from the hindrances And there is truth in that It's a rather trite and obvious thing to say I think what our author is saying is look away from the great cloud of witnesses themselves Don't get trapped in the past, you will not run well on the track, if you keep on looking over your shoulder, the spectators look at them, be inspired by them, but don't copy them they lived in their day and did what was right in their day you must live in your day when I was a boy I grew up across the river Forth in Fife in one of the coastal villages and this was a, and the coastal villages, not just in Fife, but right up and down the east coast about a about hundred years ago or so, had known a tremendous revival a fisherman turned evangelist called Jock Trupp preached up and down the fishing ports and my, grand, my grandfather's generation who were young at that time many of them were converted through this vigorous and powerful preaching of this man and as a result of this many flourishing little groups of Christians grew up really flourishing they related well to their environment they, and they saw many people converted and they saw growth by the, time, by the time I was a boy, and by the time I was in my teens, many of these places still existed. But they were slowly dying. And they were slowly dying because they were not witnessing to their own generation. They were still using the idioms and the styles of generations of 20, 30, 40 years ago. And consequently, they they began to die out the gospel is unchanging the gospel is non-negotiable the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ one with with God and also human giving himself as a sacrifice and dying and rising again but the way we express that has to change from generation to generation that's why we are not going to communicate with this generation we keep on looking back at how the great cloud of witnesses did it they were all very radical in their days Um, I've mentioned Wesley already his open air preaching was was an affront and a a disgrace to the respectability of the time so don't look at the spectators consider him he is the author he began our faith and he will complete it you see the the point is we're not running in order to gain his favour we're not running so at the end you'll say well you actually made a very good job of it and since you've run so well I'm going to give you a prize the point is we've run because he has already claimed us as his own and given us his grace and his strength we are told he sat down that doesn't mean he's doing nothing it's rather like that phrase back at the beginning of the Bible God rested after the days of creation not that he does nothing, now, but that that particular task is over the brevity of the trial and the permanence of the glory consider what does this mean? it's a word that means calculate, estimate and think about how Jesus was not shielded in his earthly life Jesus' earthly life was not at all say, like the earthly life of the Queen it must be great being the Queen in some ways never having to think what to wear never having to stand in a queue never having to book a plane for yourself in other ways it must be awful but in many ways it's it's a shielded life Jesus' earthly life was not shielded in the slightest he experienced as Hebrews every temptation we experience he suffered in the way we suffer but yet without sin and in many ways the old word which is contradiction is a good word because our author is particularly talking about verbal attacks here and that's so common today it's so common where the where the unbelieving media, for example, and authorities try to suppress Christianity. There was a determined attempt, for example, in the University of Hull last month to try and close down the Christian Union because they following following of course the policy of the national CUs have only Christians in their leadership. And this is the kind this is the kind of thing that our author means by contradiction. It's when people stand up for the fundamentals of the faith and for the gospel, we also an experience of contradiction. Consider him. Whatever our circumstances, if we're just beginning Christian life, consider him. He's there to help you and to make sure you reach the goal. If perhaps you are maybe wondering if this is for you, wondering if you can be a Christian at all, then consider him. If you're a new student and well enough into term for the first excitement to have worn off but far away from Christmas and so on, then consider him. If you're a middle-aged person crushed down by the weight of a responsible job, consider him. If you're old and tired and weary and feeling you can't do another step, consider him. Each one of us, as we meet around his table, as we gather to remember him, brothers and sisters consider him let's pray